Welcome to the Ad Nauseam Podcast, where classical gourmands everywhere can finally get their fill. Join us for a delectable discussion of Greco-Roman civilization stretching from the Minoans and Mycenaeans through the Renaissance and right down to the present. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here are your hosts, Dr. David Noe and Dr. Jeff Winkle. Welcome, listener, to episode 103 of the Ad Nauseam Podcast. I'm down here in the Vomitorium with my good friend and co-host, Dr. David Noe. How are you feeling tonight? I'm doing well. And your name is? Did you even say? No, oh, I didn't. I'm, no. I'm Dr. Jeffrey Winkle. That's wonderful, Jeff. Yes. But uh, you're doing well, right? You're feeling good? I am doing well. I'm excited about this podcast. You know how much I love the E word. Yes. I like to throw the word excited around. Right. Oh, yeah, exactly. Willy nilly. Mr. Excitement. That's what I am. Yeah, that's that's right. what I do. Yeah. How you feeling about the snow on the ground? I was just going to I was just going to ask you about yeah. that. Well, I think that the, um, how does this go? The moon on the crust? Is it crust? What? The moon, the moon on the crest of the new... Is it crest or crust? I think it's crest. I think crust sounds better. Okay, we'll go with crust. The moon on the crust of the new fallen snow yes. gives the luster of midnight to objects below. Isn't that how it goes? What are you, who are you quoting there? I don't is know. This is some kind of a Christmassy thing, you know? Is it? I and my kerchief and mom and her cap had just settled down for a long winter's nap. Don't you know this? Is that the Bon Jovi? No, I don't think so. No, no. I think you're you right. don't know this one. I don't know, but you're, I think you're right. It is crust. I was thinking like the moon cresting, but it's on the crust of the snow. But I think, yeah, I don't know. Crust, <laughs> crest. Let's call the whole thing off. All right, all right. Well, um, you're you're feeling well. You're, I'm, I'm feeling well. You yeah. know, I, we had we had a glorious fall here in Western Michigan. Mm-hmm. I mean, we had the colors and the temperature. It was fantastic. It was seventy five degrees on the previous Thursday, the Thursday last. It's nuts. It's nuts. It could not last. So, no, and usually when it gets cloudy and cold and wintry, I get a little bit you know crotchety. You do. I let's, don't. Let's be honest. But, but this time around, I thought, you know what? We had such a glorious fall. I'm okay with the. There's nothing to complain about. The blast coming in. No, there's nothing to complain about. No. So we have some nice, beautiful, fresh fallen snow mm-hmm. this morning took a walk around the neighborhood nice to do some contemplating yes mm-hmm. uh, really you were what were you contemplating L- lunch <laughs> yeah I was taking a break from my other kind of work i'm doing a lot of latin translating now oh yeah yeah it's it's grueling yeah you yep. know you know we should do an episode where you talk about kind of what you I think what you're working on. i think our audience would like to hear more about that i, I would enjoy it yeah i i can go on and on about some of the minutiae yeah of uh, the things that I'm involved in. How about you? What are you up to these days? Uh, just, I'm in the grind, kind of getting the, the, the latter end of the semester, you know, where the students despair and they start to give up and, and disappear a little bit. And it's your job to yeah. provide the motivation I, and the confidence. I do my best. I do my best. But it's, it's one of those things that, you know, wouldn't they, you have the Thanksgiving break. And then after that, there's two more weeks right. before exams. Those, that's, that's lost time. It is a wash. That's right. right. Nobody wants to do anything. So. Nobody's showing up. No. Right. Exactly. So I'm kind of bracing myself for that. Um, yes. So what do you think about this? If I can just try out an idea here with sure. you. I think that part of the role of the teacher is to supply the motivation for the student until they have it for themselves. I would totally agree with that. You say, look, you're here because you got slotted into this class by the registrar yeah. <laughs> or because, I don't know, your mom, your dad, your uncle, your cousin, your your boyfriend, your girlfriend said, hey, take that one. Okay, mm-hmm. here I am. Right. right. But your job is to provide the motivation and the confidence yes. until they have it for themselves. I, I totally agree. And I, I have to remind myself that I'm here to model the curiosity and passion that I want for each of them. Exactly. Yeah. Well said. Yep, yep, yep. Exactly. But yeah, it's a it's it can be a tough sell. Mm-hmm. The weather kind of oh, goes south sure. and the days get shorter. Ooh, you know, I'm bracing myself. That's right. Yep. As they say in Latin, uh, Jeff Rem Acutetegisti. And what is what on earth does that mean? Rem Acutetegisti. You have touched it. Yes. You have touched it with a needle. Oh, really? Yeah. It's okay. like saying you have hit the nail on the head. Oh, I like that. Yeah, they had this expression. So you have the rem, right? The topic, the idea. Mm-hmm. Aku, fourth declension noun in the ablative yes. instrument. Tetagisti from Tango Tangara. Right? Very nice. So you've hit the nail on the head. You've poked it with a needle. Yes. Yes. And excellent. Now, now I'm, ex- I'm extra motivated to get back <laughs> in that classroom. Yes. Start poking things left and right. There you go. So Dave, what are we talking about tonight? We are in the Aeneid once more. Yes. And it's time to launch into book seven. Right. So we're in the second half. That's correct. So I, I feel like... Halftime is over, half right? Halftime's over. We, we, um, we need like a halftime pep talk. The know? marching band is off the field. Right. But what what happened in the locker room? What's Aeneas saying to the guys? That's a great question. Right? You know, yeah. he's, he's got to rally the troops here. Because mm-hmm. it's... Um, 
It's coming down to the wire. I, I imagine him uh, standing in front of a chalkboard, an old-fashioned chalkboard. Yeah. None of this whiteboard business. No, no, right? no, 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 no. We got to search around for your dry erase marker, which is usually more dry than erase. <laughs> yeah, forget about it. Chalk. Chalk, right? chalk on the board. That's I'm also right. imagining all of the men, if we're continuing the foot, like say a football metaphor That's here. right. They're all wearing kind of those old leather helmets without the without the face mask. Missing a few teeth. Yeah. I left one in Sicily. I left one in, you know, Carthage. Exactly. Newt Rockney. That's right. Yeah. They're on bended knee, you know, gathered around Aeneas, and he's given the boys the, yeah. a pep talk. Exactly right. So um, maybe we'll see a bit of that in the in, in It could seven, be. Right? Because the, the venue changes, the whole um, <clears throat> the whole focus changes. We're moving from the Odyssean mm-hmm. uh, half of the Aeneid into the Iliadic. Right. So um, we should be looking for expecting big changes. That's here. right. It's the third quarter, right? It's, it's really coming down to this now. Yep. That's right. So... Um, shall I proceed with the opening quote? I would be happy if you did so. Okay. But I'd also like to point out that we have no shout outs. Oh man, that, that's a little disappointing. It is because let's face it, uh, the best part of this show is the listeners. Right. And the kinds of things they contribute in terms of their insight and their commentary. Yep. I, We'd like to hear from them and about them. I I agree. So um, listen uh, listen at the end of the episode for our, our email addresses. Mm-hmm. Uh, come on, drop us a line. Yeah. yeah we we want to hear. That's right. Hear. But the opening quote is uh, it's from a, a certain Kenneth J. Reckford. Yes. This comes from an article he wrote way back in uh, 1961. Wow. In the American Journal of Philology called Latent Tragedy in Aeneid 7, lines 1 through 285. That was before the British invasion, if I'm not mistaken. Just before. Yes. This is just as the Beatles were kind of doing their thing in Germany. Landing right. their amphibious boats on the shores of New England, right? And exactly. Storming with, the Merv Griffin show or the, something like exactly, that. Exactly, with their their bowl-cut haircuts. Right. And, uh, and, uh, and singing and and not bobbing their heads back and forth. Yes. The world was never the same afterwards. No, 1961. So way back in 61, yep. Kenneth J. Reckford. He wrote this. All right. He wrote, Aeneid Book 7, lines 1 through 285, is generally considered the calm before the storm. Aeneas, his Trojans, and the Latins enjoy an apparent respite from troubles before Juno's arrival, line 286. But Juno is no dea ex machina, and the storm which he conjures, uh, conjures up would be dramatically unconvincing were we not prepared for it by a complex foreshadowing of tragedy in Latium. First, a sense of foreboding hangs over Aeneas's arrival. Secondly, the invocation to Erato recalls and directly affirms earlier prophecies of the Latin War. Thirdly, the obscure situation of Latium is associated with the known tragedies of Troy and Carthage through parallelism of incident, the happy landing of the Trojans, their feasting at night, and exploration at dawn, the embassy, the address of Ilioneus, and the monarch's kindly welcome, and the exchange of gifts all have tragic connotations from books one and two. Fourthly, Latinus is associated with Dido and Priam, Lavinia with Dido and Helen, and Latium with Carthage and Troy by means of an elaborate symbolic web of verbal and imagistic echoes from books one through four. Hmm. So I, I, I was reading the, the rest of the article. One of the things that Reckford is is trying to tackle and is trying to convince the reader of is that, um, well, he's he's arguing against a what I, uh, a general reading of the Aeneid that says the second half and the first half are almost two distinct epics okay. to the point where um, the latter six books don't really reflect back on, hmm. the, on the, the the first part. And so... There are people who hold that position? Apparently, maybe that was huge in 1961. Yeah. I, I was unaware of this. And so, I wasn't either. So he was pointing out, no, there's these very direct connections and, and echoes of the previous book. And so it, it's not so much... Oh, the the Odyssey in half is over, and now we're on to a whole new uh, storyline. Right. So, so if we can refer to our good friend Brooks Otis, yes, right, Virgil, a study in civilized poetry, that was released in 1964. Okay. So I think that this book, with its uh, you know brilliant description of the architectonic nature, yeah, of the Aeneid, I mean the storylines in there are so elaborate. I suppose this was the nail in the coffin. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Since we're talking about needles and nails tonight, it yeah. appears. There we go. That was the nail in the coffin for this notion that the, the two parts of the epic are separate endeavors. I guess a record was just waiting for Otis to, Correct. to come around a couple years later. Yeah. Um, but I also thought it's interesting how he kind of points out that, um, that also this kind of this general view that these first third of book seven is a, a just, it's a really short honeymoon. Right. Right. And, and so Aeneas, as we'll see, is, he's, he's welcomed very... Um, uh, kind of passionately by mm-hmm. by King Latinus and, and and the like, and he basically says, "Yeah, you know, make yourself at home. You want a city? Go build it." Right. Um, but it doesn't take long for this to quickly fall apart. Right. Yeah. And then war breaks out. Yes. War destructive. War destructive, and it goes full Iliad uh, fairly uh, quickly. 
Um, but I also thought it was interesting that um, you know, for all of the calm before the storm, all of the kind of the the, the short honeymoon that Aeneas gets, the book starts with a funeral, and Caeta um, Aeneas's nursemaid is is buried in the opening lines of Book Seven. Right. So there too, it, it's it's it starts with this very somber note, mm. and I think that that casts a shadow or kind of tells us that you know, for all of kind of the happy things that happen in these next few lines. Never forget right. that the, the the tragic the tragic darkness is never far. Yes. Speaking of uh, tragic darkness never yeah. being far. Yes. I think it's time for some corrigenda. Oh, what did we what did we mess up now? Do you think I threw the audience off the scent there? Because <laughs> it sounded so much like I was going to introduce the ads. Yeah, but this early? Yes. No. 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 <laughs> Don't worry, listener. We'll get to the ads. Yeah. No, some corrigenda. Okay. We made two last week, and um, I think one we can share responsibility for it was both of us. Okay. Uh, the notion that at the end of each of the first four books, there's a death. Oh, yeah. Right? Um, and we missed out on book one. It's the death of Anchises. Oh, of course. Yeah, that's kind of a, a, you know, obvious oversight on our part. Yeah. The other corrigenda, I'll take, you know, corrigendum, I'll take sole responsibility for. Alba Longa is not northeast of Rome. Mm. As I think I said, it's 12 miles southeast. Oh. So I know, gentle listener, you have been tossing and turning uh, losing sleep, you know, engaged in deep lucubrations, thinking, when is nobody going to figure out the actual location of Alba Longa? Right. How could he do that to How me? How could they do that? Somebody has been tossing and turning. I can't believe they haven't kind of rage tweeted. Sent us it. some sort of a nasty email. Yeah, yeah. Alba Longa. Come on. We were so focused on the Buffalonian, <laughs> if you recall. <laughs> exactly. That we got our geography missed That's up. right. Well, it's very easy to get distracted by the buffalo. I suppose. Right. Alba Longa, 12 miles southeast of Rome. So there's our Corrigendon. Gotcha. All right. Well, thanks for bringing that up. That, of course. That, uh, I completely missed that. Sure. Dave, you want to start us up by reading some Latin? I would. And I would like to start with the very first lines okay. of Book 7. So Book 7, lines uh, 1 and following. And then you're going to give us some of the Lombardo. Am I right? Yes, I am. Okay. Here we go. Book 7, line 1. Tu coquelitoribus nostris ainea nutrix, aeterna moriens moriens famam cae eta didisti, et nunc servat hanasse dem tuus osaquanomen, hesperien magna si quest ea gloria signat, at pius exequis aeneas rita solutis, agra compasito tumuli post qualta qui erunt, aequor attendit ter wellis purtum quebrilinquit. Aspirant aurin noctem nec candida cursus, luna negat splendet tremolo sub lumina pontus. Very nicely done. Thank you. And Thank you. Um, Lombardo uh, translates thusly. When the last rites were done and her burial mound heaped up, godly Aeneas set sail from the haven as soon as the high seas had subsided. Breezes blew on into the night and the moon shone white on the tremulous water below, lighting their voyage. Hugging the coastline, they passed the land where Circe, daughter of the sun, lived in opulence. The woodland rang with her perpetual song, and in her high house she burned fragrant cedar to illumine the night while she worked the loom, combing her shrill shuttle through the delicate threads. And from those shores could also be heard lions roaring and snapping at their chains late into the night, the raging of bristled boars and caged bears and huge wolf shapes howling. <laughs> That's great. Isn't that great? It's such a great translation of a beautiful portion of the poem. Yeah. So they, um, we get a, a again a Homeric nod, yes, right? of a little, course, a bit of fan service, right? right? As we've seen along the way, Aeneas has, has passed by or, or you know, journeyed through um, places where Odysseus went. Yeah, and for old guys like me, what's fan service once again? Fan service is like when you have a like a remake of a movie, right? And they trot out the original actors showing up. I, mm-hmm. think, I think an example that I think I used in a previous episode is the um, the latest um, Ghostbusters film. Yes, you had. Um, well, one of the original Ghostbusters guys has, has passed on. But you had Aykroyd come back. Aykroyd and and Bill Murray right. and Ernie Hudson, they came right. back and uh, at the end of the movie. And it was one of those moments where mm. the audience kind of goes, ah, like, right. yes, like, or applauds. Or, or like in the Top Gun movie, where there's just some kind of, you haven't seen the new one. I have not. You're not missing anything. No. There's some kind of a piano scene, you know, apparently that was part of the original. It was all lost on me. Really? When I think of fan service, <laughs> okay. I want to talk about it for a moment in a digression about a revolutionary moment in my life. Please. Do you remember being a kid and uh, being hot in Michigan summers? Of course. Yes. This is before AC was, you know, cheap and readily available. Mm -hmm. And so in order to cool down, you had to have a fan, right? 
The first fans were box-like structures with whirring blades. Yes. But do you remember when the oscillating fan first came out? I, I mean, I don't remember specifically, but... Uh, um, this was a big deal, Winkle. W- th- w- really? So you remember this? Uh, yes, I do. Okay. I remember <laughs> pressing the button and watching it oscillate. This was great entertainment as yeah. a kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because before that, the, the fan was always fixed in a static spot. You know, you could sneak up on it from the side. Yeah. But not with these oscillating fans, you know, they're all over the place. Well, wasn't it kind of disappointing because the oscillating fan is it's blowing on you just half the time. And so like, oh, that fan can blow like, on oh, everybody. Right. Or if you're a kid like I was, yeah. you can move around and, you know, you just s- kind of follow block it. it right. right. The, uh, the, the, the novelty was the oscillation itself. Yes. I got gotcha. you. Right. On three speeds. You don't remember this? I, well, I remember we, ha- we this, had one. It was just, revolutionary. I don't remember this as kind of a... Like you weren't a, impressed? Like before, it was before oscillation yeah. and after oscillation. Yeah. Was it B-O and A-O? <laughs> Maybe you had television. Maybe that's the difference. <laughs> Maybe that's it. Yeah. I do remember the early box fans. I mean, they were all metal. That's right. right? Exactly. Dangerous exactly. things. Exactly. You remove the grate and you could like you shred, lose a you finger. Could shred meat in that, with that thing. Yeah. So that's that's the kind of fan service that... Uh, that I appreciate. Yeah, gotcha. gotcha. Okay. Right. But we digress. We do it. Yeah, so right. the burial mentioned here, the funeral is for uh, Aeneas's nurse, right? Right. Ca- cafeteria? Cafeteria. Yeah. It's a Caeta uh, is her name. Oh, sorry. Uh, and and there too, it seems, I mean, it strikes me as a, a bit kind of thrown in. And it's There's a reason. It's because of geography. Oh, it's because, so her, na- the, her name gives the name to the place. It's That's a, correct. It's ideology. Okay. That's right. All right. And that uh, you're not impressed, I can tell, by no. the shrug of your shoulders. No, and the... it, it seems a little tacked on. It's okay. A, it's like, Aeneas, uh, like, like Virgil has to kind of account for... Uh, the mark that Aeneas leaves on the landscape everywhere he goes. It's interesting, isn't it? I guess so. Let's say a boat sails up the Grand River mm-hmm. and lands here in Grand Rapids. You wouldn't want to know that, you know, the captain of the boat buried a nurse in Hudsonville and buried a best friend in, you know, Grand in Grandville and Hudson in Hudsonville. I think a little weird. I'd suspect of maybe being a serial killer, possibly. But uh, I guess it's mildly interesting. Mildly interesting? <laughs> These are huge landmarks. Yeah, I and guess. It's, it's attaching Aeneas to the terrain yeah. in, in a very literal sense. I guess so. I guess so. Because that's, that's part of Virgil's program, right? He wants to kind of establish how important this found, this, the, uh, you know, that the Trojans were, how foundational they were to kind of the Roman project. Absolutely. Right? And so everywhere you go, you see the fingerprints of this man. It's also, if I can just defend the notion a little bit, yep. it's a sympathetic touch. Because look, look at uh, at who he is burying, right? Okay. He's burying his nurse, right? This is the last, the potentially last uh, connection to his old life. Okay. Father's gone. Creus is gone. Dido's gone. Pelinurus. This is maybe the last connection to the old life. I like that observation. I think that it, that being true, um, it just it surprised me that we don't. Um, Aeneas kind of buries her and. Well, let's move on. We okay. do, we do, there's there's very little emotion. Maybe maybe he's just numb to this stuff by right. now. Yeah, but um, but I think also just in terms of kind of framing the the episode, it too is like uh, we get some happy kind of celebratory scenes uh, coming up. It's it's like um, it's like the Israelites um, or the proto Israelites, you know, reaching the promised land. Mm. Right? And there's kind of it's a time for celebration, but there's a lot of work ahead. And kind of starting this off with a very uh, with a solemn funeral. Again, Virgil is saying that, yeah, okay, it's just time for celebration, but never forget this mm-hmm. this cloud. Mm-hmm. Right? So then they glimpse the mouth of the Tiber. Yep. And so, Aeneas, what, yep. he commands the ships head in that direction. Yep, goes up the Tiber. He, he starts to kind of, he starts to feel it now. Okay. Uh, Neptune sends them a, a fair wind so they don't wind up on uh, Circe's Island and become you know, transformed into a part of her menagerie. That's correct. Right. And, then, uh, and that's where Odysseus's men, um, they still are, perhaps? Oh, the... Uh, They're still trapped, right? Because the time frame here, he has landed at a number of different spots just weeks behind right. um, Odysseus and his journey. For example, when he sailed past Nicopolis and the Cyclops shores. Right. right? And that I thought that... I, I would have loved a, maybe a couple more scenes like that. So with the, the Cyclops episode, remember there was the one of Odysseus' men Correct. that had been left behind and comes like, down and... Kill came, me if you must. I'd rather die at your hands right. than be eaten alive. Right. And so that, that kind of direct intersection with, with right. Homer. I, I liked that. So you like the fan service now. I do. Well, I never said I didn't. Okay. Yeah. It was the... I thought it was the, the funeral, I thought, rang a little hollow for oh, me. Oh, okay. Right? But I, I love the fan service. Well, what's the opposite of ringing hollow? Um, ringing solid? Ring, ringing solid, kind of, yeah, kind of sounding kind of, you know, 
kind of dead and empty. All right. All right. But that's what ringing hollow is. Um, I, I guess so. I so don't... what what makes a, a, a funeral not ring hollow for you? Well, I guess what I was saying is that it's it seems kind of perfunctory. It's like we have the funeral and we move on. We, there's, uh, I mean, I liked your observation that this is like the like the last kind of familial link that that Nias has. And if that's true, why don't we see him a little bit more kind of uh, contemplative? Especially clever because she's not actually a family member, right? As a as a nurse, she is a, a surrogate family member, an adopted family member. Right, right, right. He right. can't even hold on to that. No, exactly. So I mean, it just like and to use to, to compare the the Homeric story, you know, Odysseus returns home and Eurycleia, his nursemaid, is still alive. That's what I was thinking of. Okay, yeah. So Aeneas has to bury his nurse, mm-hmm. right? But he buries her not on foreign soil. Yes, he buries her in the new homeland. Right. She's the marker. Right. You you mentioned you know the Israelites moving into Israel. It's not unlike, and I just mean in, in externalities, not in theological meaning. Yeah. It's not unlike picking up Joseph's bones and burying them in the promised land. Yeah. You know, he extracted the promise uh, from, I think, his sons, um, Ephraim and Manasseh. When you leave here, take my bones with you because right. I want to be buried with God's people. So Kaeda yeah. has a burial that's with the new foundation. I got gotcha. you. Um, there too, I, I like it. But then it would strike me as well. Why not bury Anchises there? Why, I mean, why is he in I Sicily? Don't, I don't want to. I don't want to throw shade at at Caeda, the, the the nursemaid. But if this is going to be your first marker, where you know the, the transfer of somebody's bones, why yeah. not? Why not bury a heavy hitter? Well, I guess I could say he represents the old world too much. <laughs> this could just be special pleading. Yeah. Right? Okay. Yeah. Which is my probably my least favorite fallacy. Okay. Right? Okay. Yeah. The special pleading is, you know, it's right because you say it's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. I got gotcha. you. All right. So um, let's uh, let's move up the let's Tiber. Let's move on. All right. All so right. Th- they find the mouth of the Tiber and they, they sail up it. Um, and then at this really kind of interesting moment where Virgil invokes the specific muse of Erato. Mm-hmm. And so Erato is one of the, the nine muses and she's right. usually associated with, with lyric poetry and not just lyric poetry, but usually with erotic mm-hmm. lyric poetry. As her name indicates. Yes, right. Um, and and one of the things that puzzles me is why is he invoking that muse? Mm. So let I well, because well, there is a romance that's about to be inaugurated. So you think that's what it's kind of pointing towards? It's possible. Okay. Do you have a favorite muse? Um, well, let's. I, I I listed the muse. I had to remind myself of who they all were. Okay. And so, um, but to maybe our our listeners would like to like a refresher. So you have Calliope, who's the muse of epic poetry. Mm-hmm. You have Cleo, who's the muse of history. Uh, Euterpe, the uh, the muse of flutes and music. Thalia, muse of comedy and pastoral poetry. My favorite. Your your favorite. Yes. Yeah, what, there's you, a there's a fabulous uh, bust that survives from antiquity of Thalia. Where's this one? Uh, I don't remember where it is. Okay. I'll have to look it up during the break, during halftime. Yes. While we're crouching in the locker room. Exactly. But it's such a beautiful, beautiful image uh, of a of a woman who you know she has great natural beauty, the the marble bust, but there's just kind of a smile playing around her lips. Oh yeah. So it's perfect for comedy. So that's why you you like. Uh, Thalia. Thalia. Yeah, okay. Right. All right, right. Uh, then there's uh, Melpomene, the, the uh, muse of tragedy. Terpsichore, the muse of dance. Um, Erato, love poetry, uh, lyric poetry. Polyhymnia, hymns and sacred poetry. And Urania, the muse of astronomy. Right. So astronomy. I always th- that's kind of yeah. gets its own muse. Of right? course. Right. Yeah. Right. Who hasn't looked up at the night sky and felt inspired? Right. But I think it goes against the grain of kind of how we divide our you know, our areas of learning, right? Yeah, we don't we tend not to think of astronomy in terms of poetic terms. Well, maybe you and I do, but in well, terms of like as, as a field of study. Um, the planets are named after the gods and goddesses. True enough. Right? So uh, Lewis's space trilogy, I think he brings out the, the notion of what's out of the silent planet, Perilandra, and mm-hmm. whatever the third one is. Mm-hmm. The notion very well that, you know, the planets are... They're alive. They're creatures in some sense. Yeah, tapping into that classical idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly the 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 music of the spheres. Right, right. Exactly. So okay, but um, so and, it, and yeah, if please. I may, the daughters, right? The daughters of Zeus and Memory, Nemazni. Mm-hmm. That's where they all come from. Exactly. So why pick out Erato? Erato. I, mean, I think I think you're right. If I, I mean, if I had to connect it to the story at hand, is that it? Um, it presages the. I guess the the relationship between Aeneas and Lavinia, mm-hmm. which frankly is not really a hot romance. Not at no. all. <laughs> it's a dud. It is kind of a dud, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's a dud. Right. So I don't know. Um, you guys maybe wishful, hopeful thinking on on uh, Aeneas's part. Mm. Um, 
but I, I I guess I don't know what else how else to make a to make sense of it or what else Virgil might be trying to say by invoking that particular muse. I don't know. Yeah. I don't really have any uh, interpretive light to shed upon that. Okay. Well, this is something for our our listeners to ponder then. Right. So then Jeff, we are introduced to King Latinus. Right. The cult hero, the founder of the Latin people. Exactly. So they go up the Tiber. And so I guess they're, they must be roughly in the area where Rome will once will soon be not soon, but at, at some point will be. Yeah. It's about 300 years off, but that's where everything starts. Right. And so they meet Latinus, and let me um, give a little Lombardo here to introduce him. Mm-hmm. Um, he translates, King Latinus, old and gray, ruled over lands and cities through a long twilight of peace. He was born, we are told, from Faunus and the Laurentine nymph um, Marica. Faunus's father was Picus, and Picus looked to you, Saturn, as his father. You are the founder of the royal line. Mm. Right? Okay. So we've got Saturn mm-hmm. as the father of Picus. Picus is the father of Faunus, and Faunus is the father of Latinus. Right. So in there, in just in that short genealogy, we have uh, Latinus's links to the larger kind of Greco-Roman mythology of Correct. Saturns, um, and then also figures like Faunus, uh, more kind of indigenous, right. uh, um, kind of divine oracular figures. Right. Right. And Saturn, of course, uh, is Kronos among the Greeks. Yes. And this, he, he went to Italy in his retirement, kind of. Is that the story? I don't even, I don't even know that one. Is that how it went? Yeah. Well, he was originally a god of agriculture. Uh-huh. And so he was not a sky god like Zeus mm-hmm. or like uh, Jupiter, but he was a god of agriculture. He's usually depicted with the, with the reaping, the scythe. Right. right. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I didn't know that he... He kind of, when the Olympians won, he checked out and kind of said, well, I'm going to, I'll, uh, I'll live over here. This is sunset retirement, right? Yeah. Del Boca Vista phase three. Right, right. Well, I mean, it's that, in that, that, that kind of that Roman, um, you know, as much as they loved uh, Greek culture, they, with this kind of the story of Aeneas and, and, and going back to the Trojans, they're kind of taking kind of the opposite track. And so with right. Zeus, uh, the Olympian in the Greek tradition, oh, well, we'll take Cronus, you know, one of the the titans that was defeated. Right. Right. And so we'll take Aeneas, who was one of the Trojans that was defeated, and right. they kind of spin their own kind of gold out of that thread. Mm-hmm. Yep. So he, we learn, Aeneas learns that um, Latinus has an available, well, not maybe not so available daughter, Lavinia. Right. Um, and Latinus is starting to kind of wonder, hey, maybe this maybe this kid is has got it. Maybe right. this wouldn't be such a bad one to have in the family. But here's the catch. What's the catch? The fly in the ointment. Yes. Is that of course she is already engaged to one Turnus, right? And not and not only that, that the second fly is not only she's already engaged is that um, Latinus's wife uh, Amata mm-hmm. is she says that's the union that's got to happen. Mm-hmm. She, she's in Turnus's camp and really wants that marriage to take place. And so she's not going to be she's not going to be happy about uh, if her husband says, "Hey, well, what about this guy?" Right. Right. Are we ever given a justification for why Amata is so fond of Turnus and the ensuing nuptials? I didn't I didn't see it in my right. in my reading of this this book this past week. So um but I you know I didn't even think about that. But that's um it's like in a if she, the actress playing Amata would ask the director, "What's my motivation?" Right. right? <laughs> <laughs> why do I like Turnus again? <laughs> exactly, right. But it also reminded me, did you ever have in your um in, back in your dating days, did you have um a situation where uh, the uh, the mom didn't really like you, and maybe thought like maybe a previous boyfriend was pretty one, much every <laughs> situation. Every time. <laughs> yeah. Oh man! See, I had the opposite problem. The, okay. The mom always loved me. Right. The girl, not, not so, so much. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a funny dynamic. Yeah. It's a funny dynamic those relationships because everything is unknown, right? So you know you um, Aeneas is courting Lavinia. Right, but there's no way he's going to get in on uh, Amata's good side. No, it's just not going to happen. But Latinus is all in favor of it. Latin, Latinus is all in favor. He wants the he wants the new guy. Mm-hmm. And, so, and I think uh, you know, Amata is there to kind of to play a role. Mm-hmm. She is there to kind of throw a, a monkey wrench into the into the works. I think I said last time she's like a foil. Yeah, yeah, I mean, if that works. And so, um, but uh, it would be nice to have a little bit of background. That's mm-hmm. a tale waiting to be told. You're right. It's one of those loose threads where you know a, a, a poet could can take that and run with it, like a mashup kind of a thing. There you go. Mm-hmm. There you go. I like it. So um, we've but, got some we've got some prophecies here. Yeah. So in, in Latinus's favor, uh, the gods seem to be kind of on his side in terms of accepting this this newcomer, and um, we got bees. 
Right. You know, Aeneas, uh, Virgil loves his bees. You know, Who doesn't? Well, when we talk about the Georgics, too, I mean, how many how many lines are spent kind of talking about the buzzing of those bees? The whole book. The whole book is, is, all book is front to back bees. Yep. yep. It's fascination. Yeah. He, he, uh, he, he loved it. It's that, um, that idealization of, of, the, of the countryside. Right. 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 Um, and if I can, you know, mention another C.S. Lewis reference. Yeah. I'm much less a fan of C.S. Lewis than most persons like me whom I meet. Right. But I'm a little bit of a fan. Okay. So here's another one. Uh, Lewis said, uh, men naturally hate, this is kind of chauvinistic, but I think it's a joke on Lewis's part. Okay. Men naturally hate bees for two reasons. Hmm. Their society is communistic and it's ruled by a woman. <laughs> Did he really write that? Words to that effect, <laughs> okay. yes. It's oh. almost verbatim. Oh, that's funny. Now, I mean, not to go on too much of a digression, but um, I mean, are you... Are you kind of, uh, you said you're not a huge Lewis fan. No, I read him a lot when I was young, okay. but then I went on to find other things far more enjoyable. I got you. Okay. Are you, uh, in terms of like, you don't like his fiction, you don't like his theology, or, or is it both? Or? Well, we've talked before about how he is a better critic of literature, I, I think, than he is a philosopher. Yes, I would agree with that. So yeah. I learned a lot from him, but then I kind of, I mean, I kind of outgrew it. Gotcha. I gotcha. I don't know if that sounds haughty, probably. Right. But. But um, but maybe he's right on bees. Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> At least he's, he's he may not be right, but he's funny. <laughs> so there's some bees that buzz around um, some of uh, Latinus's sacred laurel trees, and so the laurel tree, of course, associated with Apollo. And these Absolutely. Are, these are oracular bees, and so um, there's a seer. He's watching the bees, and I think there we see a little bit of a hint of of like the Roman augur to come, right? Mm-hmm. Watching the bird signs, right? Mm-hmm. You you can interpret the future by watching what animals do. Correct. Yep. Yeah, specifically the flight of birds. Flight of birds, or yeah. how chickens kind of peck around. That's right? a good point. So yeah. I think we see a little bit of that. Um, and I, I'm I'm trying to think of a, a Greek corollary, but um, I don't. I don't think the Greeks practiced augury quite as much. Not not in this fashion. I mean, they, no. they're oracles, of course, but well, and they shared with the Romans the um, the horospecs, right? The auspices. Yeah. You cut open the animal. You look at the liver and the lobes and the striations and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, they shared that together, and that seems to be Near Eastern. Um, yeah. Hittite. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, but the the Romans were much more dedicated to augury the flight of birds than the Greeks. Right. And here we get the flight of bees. Mm-hmm. And so um, the seer interprets that. He says this this outlander, this outsider, uh, will soon arrive in the same direction that the bees are flying. And so mm. the bees are flying apparently from, I guess that would be from west to east. Or, yes, you know, right. Um, As the wind blows across the Italian peninsula there you from go. west to east. Yes, right. And so that's a sign that uh, you got to watch out for. Mm-hmm. The, the mysterious stranger. Correct. You know, like a, a trope you find in, in literatures around the world. Coming into town. Yep. Can I read a little bit of this Lombardo? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. The king was troubled by the... Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. We, we got to back up a little bit, don't we? Oh, we we gotta, have to talk about the hair on fire. Oh, okay. This is a really bizarre scene, too. So there's another sign where uh, Lavinia is standing a little bit too close to a, a smoking, burning altar, and her long, her long hair catches on fire. And uh, but uh, apparently this is a also another omen to be interpreted. Had, had that hair been treated with like an oat milk <laughs> garni- Garnier? Yeah, I mean, which does wonderful wonder for the follicles, but I mean, so flammable. It's like gasoline, right? Exactly. Right. <laughs> so apparently this is a kind of a two-sided oracle. Uh, the first interpretation of the hair on fire is that oh, her her future is going to be as bright as her burning hair. Okay. Right? So she's got good things on the horizon, but right. it also means that war is is on the doorstep mm. as well. Mm. And I guess the same seer, the same bee seer can kind of see that immediately as well. Interesting. Yep. Um, but now then, then, so Latinus is now, he's troubled by all of this and what am I going to do? And so he consults the oracle of his, of Faunus, his father. And uh, would you read these lines? I'd love to. Yep. The king was troubled by these portents and consulted the oracle of Faunus, his prophetic father, the Vatic grove beneath High Albunea, a great forest that echoes with the sound of a sacred spring and breathes mephitic vapors from its shadows. Sounds like my mouthwash. <laughs> what is what are mephitic vapors? Uh, related to the underworld, death and hell and like mef- brimstone. Mephistopheles. That's is correct. The same there? Okay, mephitic. Yes, that's my toothpaste. The people of Italy and all Oinotria come to consult this oracle in time of doubt. It is here the priest brings his offerings. And when he has lain down to sleep upon the fleeces of slaughtered sheep, in the still of the night he sees many phantoms flitting about in strange ways, hears many voices, converses with the gods, and speaks to Acheron in Avernus's depths. Father Latinus came to consult this oracle. He slaughtered a hundred yearling sheep in wow. a ritual order and lay himself down cushioned by their woolly fleece. 
Suddenly, a voice came from deep within the grove. Shall I read what the what the voice said? Well, should we talk about this part a little yeah, bit okay. first and build some suspense? One thing that I I dropped the ball and meant to kind of yeah. to search for is um, I don't recall this oracle showing up in like historical sources. You know, was there was there an active um, oracle of Faunus in and around Rome? I mean, we have we have you know the Sibyl at Cumae. That's right. And there's archaeological evidence of the, you know that was an oracular shrine and entrance to the underworld. But the oracle of Faunus, I it's I don't know if that was has been found or, or not to my knowledge. Okay. Yeah, um, what, I mean, what strikes you here? I mean, well, the the slaughter of a hundred sheep, yeah. right? This seems like a little bit of a Homeric um, nod as well, because there is the the holy hecatomb, right? Right. right. The hiere hecatombe, the slaughter of a hundred head of cattle. Mm-hmm. Here it's a hundred head of sheep. Yeah, and that lays down on all the fleeces before consulting the oracle. Right. So he's, is he 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 kind of stretches out. I, that's he, what it says. He gets comfortable. That's what it says. <laughs> all right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. He he cushioned by their woolly fleece. Right. Yeah. And now the voice. The voice comes from deep within the grove. says, Seek not, my son, to marry your daughter into a Latin family. Trust not a wedding already prepared. A stranger will come to be your son-in-law. His blood will exalt our name to the stars, and his children's children will see the world turn under their feet, and their rule will stretch over all that the sun looks down upon from sea to shining sea. Hmm. So a kind of almost an Abrahamic type of, of oracle, you know, yes. these, uh, um, your children's children will number like the stars in the sky. Right. Yeah. And I like what uh, Lombardo does here, from sea to shining sea. Mm. You know, that's a reference to um, America the Beautiful. Right. The song America the Beautiful. Oh, yeah, yeah. And of course, Lombardo has to have that that very familiar phrase in mind when he chooses to translate accurately. Yeah. The Latin of that um, that particular line of verse. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's clever. That is very clever. Now, one little kind of possible nitpick here. So, Vanus says, seek, oh. seek not my son to marry your daughter into a Latin family. Turnus is Rutulian. So, is he... Fair. Is, are we, is Latin just kind of making, speaking to just a, a local generic. family? Yeah, it's okay. generic. All right, okay. Boy, you're picking nits well, there. Well, yeah, I don't know. I just wondered because if he's you know, into a Rotulian family, mm. being more specific about Correct. Terms. All right. Well, okay, fine. Um, and so for Latinus then, this is this is it. That, you know, his, his instincts about Aeneas are correct and, and Turnus has to go. So we're given um, Latinus's motivation for wanting to have Aeneas as part of the family. Yes. The destiny, the prophecy that his descendants will rule the world, right? right? Everything will turn under their feet. Right. So that's his motivation. But why is Amata so set on Turnus? Is there some kind of a rift between her and her husband? I, I think, well, I think that's, I think that's fairly clear, right? Um, it, it, they're just, it's not just that they're not on the same page about what, what's best for their daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't seem like a very happy match, right? No. And even when like Aeneas winds up with Lavinia, it's, there's no, it's very bland. There's no Dido-like sparks there. No, right? it's very bland. It's it's very it's very dutiful. Right. Maybe she's, that's part of the point, right? Maybe she's yeah. the quintessential Roman bride. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just kind of um, married off where her father sees fit. Right. Um, but um, for political purposes. Yeah, exactly. And speaking of political purposes, yes, it's time for the ads. <laughs> This episode of Ad Nauseum is brought to you by Racial Coffee, the good folks in Portland, Oregon, with the famous entrepreneur, Mr. Mark Helweg, has done it twice. Two times. First, the Racial 6, and then its older, more sophisticated brother, the Racial 8, delivering fantastic coffee. Do we we know, did he start with the Racial 6 and then... Oh, no. And and then he said, oh, I can improve upon this? No, it was the other way around. Oh, really? The Racial 8 was his brew child, sorry, his brainchild. Yes. And then he said, you know... This machine is too beautiful, really. It's in some ways, it's difficult to produce to that high standard of quality. So Mm -hmm. let's make an equally high standard quality machine, but a little smaller footprint. Yep. Uh, Leave you with a little more, what do they call it? A countertop real estate. Yeah. And a little more attainable, which is euphemistic for not quite as costly. Right. I got, I got you. So that's how that story went. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But I hear you have something special for the listeners today, Dr. Winkle. I do. I composed a limerick. All right. Um, in kind of praise of ratio. Something about Nantucket? No, no. We're going to stay far away from the uh, the eastern seaboard. All right. So this was, um, if I may. I'd love Sorry. to hear it. The carafe, neither fakish nor faddish. The bloom, all the bane, it will banish. Mark Helwig has done it, so don't curig or bun it. Be free from the tang that is brackish. Oh, wow. 
You need to insert some applause here, please, Mishka. I I, I enjoy writing limericks in that my was spare fan- time. That was fantastic. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, so I was waiting. I was waiting. We got to line three, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and then we got the, the bun it. Yes. The, the bun coffee machine. Right. I like that, but I was waiting... Just to hear uh, Brackish Tang, was he going to get it in there? And boom, I there did. it was. There it was, yeah. Damn. Well, thank you. Yeah, now you've you've upped the ante. Yes. I think I'm going to write one for next week. A, a limerick or another um, another uh, style of poetry? You could do a haiku. Uh, I do not like haikus. I don't either. Not at all. It's a lazy, it's a lazy man's poetry. Well, I won't say that because someone very dear to me Uh-oh. likes haikus a lot. <laughs> but I do not like haikus. No. I just don't. Um I, Limericks, though, I like them a lot. I do, too. Did you have Bloom Phase in there anywhere? I did. The Bloom All the Bane It Will Banish. The Bloom All the Bane? Oh, it's alliterative, too. Yes. Okay, but yeah. there was not the word phase. No, I didn't have phase. Okay, well, so I can see my territory is marked out for me there now. There you go. I'm, I'm eager to hear what you come okay. up with. Okay. Yeah. So if if the listener wants to uh, plug in to some great ratio coffee mm-hmm. and uh, be inspired to compose original poetry like Dr. Winkle has done and like I hope to do... What do they need to do? Well, they need to go to ratiocoffee.com, R-A-T-I-O coffee.com. Um, pick one of these wonderful machines, the Ratio 6 to the Ratio 8, and plug in the coupon code uh, ANCO7B. Yes. And that will get you 15% off uh, your entire order. Now, that is only until um, November 30. Right. Right. If you're listening to the episode after November 30, and I think we're going to release this very soon. Yep. Then you want to use a different coupon code. Yes. And that is A-N-C-O, that is Ad Nauseum Coffee, K-5. Right. As in Klondike or Kitten or what? I think they got it. Okay. Yeah. Kevin. (laughs) (laughs) A-N-C-O, K-5. Don't people like to represent the letters with words i thought that's what they did well that's like that's like bravo a, charlie exactly Delta. exactly right it's like an airplane air, we don't want to do talk. that we, oh, i like that I, I can connect it to the ratio okay it's made out of a of a airplane grade aluminum there you go there you go but i'm gonna i want to use that november charlie stuff next okay time. Right, all right, right you yeah. can but it's I, want, yours. I want to use the pro, i want to use the proper uh, okay. uh terms yeah. a n c o seven bravo or seven brackish. Yes. And A-N-C-O Kevin Five. There we go. There we go. This episode of Oddnosium also brought to you by Hackett Publishing. Hackett Publishing now in their 50th year, celebrating this year their uh, 50th anniversary of the being in the book uh, selling biz, making uh, affordable, uh, approachable, readable, wonderful translations of the classics and many other corners of academia for a very long time. Where are their offices, Dave? They are in uh, Cambridge, Indiana. And Indianapolis, Massachusetts, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. That's right. So, and I have another limerick. Oh, you do? I, I do. Wait a minute. I'm mistaken, though. You didn't even catch it. What? 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 What, you what did so, I miss? You were so, I'm so excited about to the... get onto your limerick. I know. I switched the states and the cities. You did? Yeah, there's no Indianapolis, uh, Massachusetts. Massachusetts. No. That's right. It's Indianapolis, uh, Indiana. Not that it matters. All right. Sorry. Let's hear the limerick. Okay. So, you know, this this stems from, you know, the thing that I, one of the things I love most about Hackett is, is the, jacket, the covers. The covers, right? And so, this is kind of a celebration of that. You're spending a lot of time setting it up here. Just lay it <laughs> on the people. Okay. If you're looking for gems on the jacket, don't you fall for some book-dealing racket. Only a genius could sell us Dionysus as Elvis, and you'll only find that here at Hackett. <laughs> Very nice. Yeah. Lines three and four. Yes? I might have a little nit to pick. Oh, come on. What is it? Well, could you read lines three and four again? Yes. Only genius could sell us Dionysus as Elvis. Only genius could sell us Dionysus as Elvis. Yeah. It's good. It oh, works. Okay. It's apt. It's apt. Right? Nice. So you changed your mind. I changed my mind. Okay. Excellent. I can grow. I can mature in a short span of time. Yeah. Good. Oh, I like to hear that. Beautiful. Right. Excellent. So very nice. Uh, we can expect me uh, maybe a couple uh, poems from you next week. Ooh, boy, you've really set the bar high. I think I can handle the ratio, but can I come up with a good one for Hackett? Hmm. Hmm. No. Give it some thought. We'll see what we can do. All right. I'm at the Hackett website right now. What do you see? I see Thomas J. White discovering philosophy. Okay. This guy, I guess he trekked to the North Pole and dug around. There it is. He found it? No, no. This okay. is the fourth edition. Oh, goodness. And the Western literary tradition right next to it, Islamic legal theory, Plato's Laws by CDC Reeve. Uh, that's a brilliant translation, yeah. by the way. Seven Myths of Military History, Samurai. 
destroying to replace. I mean, it's just so vast, right? right? Yep. So much here. So much here. Classics and the rest of the world. Yes, and you'll get um, for works that uh, that need to be translated, they'll often have uh, more than one translator for the same work, so you can even find variety within that. What I think is really rare uh, for a book publisher like like Hackett. I think so. Yep. So, Dave, if uh, our listeners want to take advantage of the, our great offer, what should they do? Well, I think that they not only want to take advantage of the great offer, I think they also want to support this podcast. Yes. And if they want to do that, they need to go to HackettPublishing.com. H-A-C-K-E-T-T. Hackett. It rhymes with jacket, for example. Yeah. But not with racket. It does rhyme with racket. Oh, I'm sorry. It yeah. rhymes with racket as well. Yeah. Uh, and find the items you like. Put them in your little grocery satchel mm-hmm. and uh, drop this coupon code into the slot at the time of checkout. Yes. And that code is AN2022. Excellent. And that will earn you, dear listener, 20% off your entire order and free shipping. That's a huge deal. Take advantage of it. You will not regret it. Check it out. All right, Jeff. So as we get back into it, yes, where are we exactly? Well, um, we've just heard this this oracle from from Faunus, right? Right. Which tells him, uh, yeah, don't marry Lavinia off to a, a local kid. You got to. No. It's this it's this newcomer. That's that's where the future is. The destiny with his denim jacket and his motorcycle. Right? Yeah, it's kind of. I'm, I'm picturing little kind of James Deany. Yes, I was too. Kind of pouty. Right. Yeah, and always have with a cigarette kind of dangling from the from a one lip. Right. Yeah. That's not really Aeneas though. No, he's, he's more kind of. He's Johnny Dutiful. He is. He's choir boy. Right. Right. He's a he's a Canadian Mountie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Um, Rumor gets a hold of this and starts spreading it, and everybody starts to get a whiff of this story. Um, starts whiffing the mephitic vapors, mm-hmm. and uh, Latinas can't contain the leak. Mm-hmm. And so this is a bombshell that starts to um, ripple through the community. And of course, his wife Amada is going to uh, catch wind of this very quickly. Right. Yes. But meanwhile, we have the fulfillment of a prophecy. We don't do. We? we do. So that we that we hear that the Trojans are stopping off for something to eat. Right. And they start bringing out the stores for it to have kind of a picnic on the right. on the lawn. They have their their low carb tortillas. Right. Right. Exactly. They've right. got to keep their slim physiques. Not going to be carbon up. Exactly. And, uh, the Trojans are kind of going keto. That's right. Right. And they got their <laughs> cans of tuna fish with the. The mayonnaise, right, uh, ladled into it, right. Yeah. What else are they eating? Well, they got they, you got your veggies, right, okay. and right, and maybe some sort of um, um, maybe a tomato-based spread. Maybe to keep Virgil happy, there's like a canister of um, honey, right. There you go. Oh, yeah. And, and some tahini. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You down with the tahini? I, I, I do enjoy tahini. Yes. Can yeah. you explain to people what tahini is? Well, it's um, it's kind of uh, liquefied. Um, Sesame. Sesame. Yeah. Exactly. Right. You mix that with a little bit of honey, you got a Greek breakfast right there. You do. There. It's, yeah, great stuff. So right. they're taking all this stuff out of their picnic baskets, mm-hmm. right? And uh, But they don't have anything to really kind of put it on. No, they got their huggable portions, they, I think. Absolutely. But then they discover, hey, let's just stack a lot of this stuff on this kind of this crusty flatbread we That's have. right. And so that's when pizza was invented. Right. So many people point to this passage, right? Not not even so much tongue in cheek as saying, "Hey, this is the first pizza." Really? Right. I thought it was always tongue in cheek. Some things I was I was reading is that um, uh, pointed that this is kind of the first time we see kind of this very specific kind of Italian cuisine. Interesting. Interesting. I don't buy it for a minute. No, I buy it uh, usually every Wednesday from (laughs) Domino's. Jets. Yeah, exactly. Right. um, What's the other one? Papa John. Yeah. So pizza was invented in Italy, as the listener knows. It was. In the city of Naples. Right. Uh, I used to think that the Latin for pizza was panis neapolitanus, which is Naples bread. Yeah. Now it's, I know it's probably better called uh, placentia. Placentia. Yeah, placentia neapolitana. Okay. Similar okay. idea, but it was invented in Naples as poor man's food. It was. You got nothing to put it on, so and the best pizza in the world. In my opinion, yes, Naples. You think so? Absolutely. Really? Oh, it was fantastic there. Right, it's really good, really fresh. And then you have the you know the the uh, the green of the basil and the white of the mozzarella and, yes. the, and the red of the tomato is the Italian flag. That's correct. Right. So since we're digressing a little bit, are you a Chicago style or this this newcomer Detroit pizza? I like I like them both, but if if you if you if I had to pick, I'd go with Chicago. Chicago, right? Yes. The Detroit pizza, I don't care for that. No, you really? No. Nah, oh, okay. There's nothing good about it. Oh. You got to go to the deep dish. 
Yeah. You want to swim in your pizza. Well, I mean, they're kind of leaning in that direction. So, I mean, the Detroit-style pizza is a bit... It's it's, it's thick. thin and squarish. Well, it's it's thicker than just kind of your... Fair. Your flatsy pizza. But if you're going to go if you're gonna go thick, go all the way. It's not like a piece of Domino's pizza that you can actually see through. Right? <laughs> exactly. That. It's translucent. <laughs> right. The, the translucent, yeah. Now, there goes that... Uh, that sponsorship. Potential sponsorship. But if uh, Giordano's in Chicago is listening, we'd be more than happy... Absolutely. ...to have them on board, right? So we have we have them eating the um, the flatbread with the with all the toppings, correct? Right, and maybe then, some sliced hot dogs. And, uh, uh, really, <laughs> I, I hope not. But <laughs> no, and, that's terrible. Exactly. But some people do that. That's yeah, low carb. Um, and then they realize, oh my goodness, <sighs> we're eating our tables. We're eating our tables, and it reminds everybody of what happened in book three, where they hear this prophecy from Kalino, the queen of the harpies, that says, you know, you will not. Reach your land until you have eaten your tables. Right. And everybody said, what in the world does that mean? And they just and filed it away? filed away. It'll make sense someday. Right. They didn't it's, see that coming. They didn't someone see it. write it down on a scratch pad or I, something? Or I don't know. Maybe get a deltoid tattoo? Do If you remember book three, though, it was, it was chock full of oracular goodness and crazy things and crazy things so i would, who, I would, who remembers I, book three I, that was 45 episodes ago <laughs> no exactly so i can forgive the trojans for saying oh yeah that one of of 335 adventures that we went through that's that correct went, 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 that slipped through the cracks but what was that episode number anyway that was 87 okay so it was what, a while back now what was the forgettable title i, I can't remember i don't know do you got it in front of you there no i'm looking it up okay but you just keep talking yeah so uh, back in episode 87 we got this this prophecy and this is, in some ways, kind of the maybe the final confirmation that Aeneas and, and the Trojans need to say, okay, now we're in the right place, and now we can kind of start the second half of this story. Right. Right. So the forgettable title of episode 87 was yes. Crouching Helen, Hidden <laughs> Destiny. <laughs> a reference okay. to a very old movie. Yes, exactly. Was it, uh, who was that uh, Chinese, famous Chinese actor? Chow Yun-Fat. Chow Yun-Fat. Right. But he kind of uh, he peaked, didn't he? He he did he did peak, and then no, I don't I don't think he's been heard from since. I uh, I think he's in Vegas. Is that what it is? You no, know, it kind no. of has kind of a. Uh, he's playing Vegas. <laughs> he's got a residency at the uh, at the Mirage. I think so. <laughs> he's flying around the set on wires, <laughs> performing martial arts. <laughs> anyway, that was the name of the episode. I'd buy a ticket to that. Boy, we're way off track here. <laughs> we are. All right. So, yes, the, this final confirmation. The tables have been eaten. They are in their promised mm-hmm. land. Um, and so Aeneas, being his Aeneas self, he says, this is the perfect time to honor the gods. Um, and he uh, he begins a prayer there, very interesting, by acknowledging the place's indwelling spirit, hmm. which, again, is a very kind of Roman-y thing to do. Of course. Yeah. The landscape is suffused with deity yes every brook every rock every stone you know the cigarette butt that someone throws out the window and lands by the side of the road yeah that's a deity that's right a deity there right there boom that's a deity. exactly <laughs> right <laughs> but it, it's another reminder um i mean virgil's throwing in these very italianate things mm-hmm. right and so um while there's lots of overlap between roman religion and greek religion and, and their uh, view of the gods this notion of of this animistic landscape where everything is god haunted is a much more indigenous Italian thing than it ever was a Greek thing. Yeah, the overlap is um, a little forced, honestly. It's mostly the work of poets and intellectuals. I don't think the common people thought that their gods and the Greek gods were all that similar. No, I think you're right. It's syncretistic, right? It's, yeah. It's the um, compulsory combination. It's not as though they were so much alike. Right. So even where and I knew that you you meant that I yeah. was just trying to bring a little clarity no, to the discussion. No, that's good. So you know, even in the way that how the the Romans would worship the the so called Greek gods in in threes, right? They'd have their, right. like their own um, the Capitoline Triad, right? You'd have it was Juno, Jupiter, and Minerva, right? And so that's also the names are or the gods and so uh, there's the reflective of the Greek gods, but they're worshipped in a very Roman type. Absolutely, of way. the yep. construction of their temples. We've already mentioned, you know, the focus on augury. Mm-hmm. It's very different. Yep. So um, now there's nothing left to do. Well, there's a lot left to do, but there's uh, in this moment we've got to check out the land and start start building walls, start conquering, start conquering. Right. And this is the only real start, as opposed to all of the false starts, right? Like Polydorus and Thrace, and the attempt on oh, Delos, right. Right, and right, the right. attempt on Crete. All those misdirections. No, no, no. That's not it. Finally. Yeah. Right. 
He's been carrying, you know, one of the soldiers has been, sailors has been carrying this shovel for how long? Oh, exactly. It's just dying to use it. Can I finally use the shovel? <laughs> right? Right. It's still in the plastic. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Exactly. The, the, the sacred trowel still, exactly. still in the box. Right. And so I just, I thought this, this struck me as again, unintentionally funny. So he orders some, some guys to go out and say, you know, go take a peek, see what we're up against. Which uh, can kind of remind me of, of Joshua and Caleb. We've been you know? reading a lot of uh, the the Pentateuch and the early historical books lately. Well, I I haven't. It just I mean I just I know them you know I know them fairly well. Yeah. And just a lot of the stuff like the prophecies and this element kind of struck me like you know these are people you know that are going to a destined promised land. Right. But it's gonna it's it's not just a cakewalk that they're gonna have to carve out their place. That's right. Right. And but I thought it was it just struck me as kind of unintentional how Aeneas while they're gone just starts he he takes out his own sacred trowel and just starts digging um, trenches and and marking out the boundary mm. he's not going to wait to to kind of build his city mm. and I thought I guess if destiny's on your side you know why bother waiting right mm-hmm. it's a it's a foregone conclusion right so he doesn't wait for the report from his spies he just starts digging he just starts digging <laughs> yeah. he says we're going to build this city yep we built the city on. <laughs> Your favorite song, <laughs> Starship, Mickey, right. Mickey Thomas, your favorite song. Oh, exactly. Right. Yep. Could talk for days. Did you want me to read some Latin here? Yeah, would you? I would love to. Yeah. So this is line 192 is where we're starting here. Mm-hmm. Are we only on line 192? Oh, I know. We're, we're, we're going to be in this book a while. Yep. Here we go. Talentus templodium patriarchi latinus. Sede sedens teo cleros ad seisin tecte vocavit. At quaec ingredresis placido prior editit ordre. Dic et dar dani die nequinim nascimus et urbem, et genus audi ti quad veritatis aequor cursum, quid petitis quae causa rates aut quius agentis, litus ad au sonium tot per vada caerula vexit? Very nice. I like the Thank little, the, little the, the interrogative inflection there. Did you like that? I did. Wexit? Wexit? Yeah, I try to do that. I, I don't think that the Romans actually did that when they... Spoken red Latin if they used intonation. Yeah. I have been told by, you know, ones wiser than me that um, there's some suggestion in Plautus and Terence, you know, that without the typical question markers like the enclitic na, yes. right, that it was conveyed, an interrogative was conveyed at least sometimes by inflection. Hmm. But I don't think that that's you know really well anchored in the in the scholarship. That's really interesting, right? It's so easy to kind of make just these assumptions. that yes, it kind the, of works the way we work it, right? right? And um, there's no basis for most of those assumptions. Right, 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 right. Yeah. So I, I find that kind of aspect of linguistics really fascinating. I do too. It's kind of the it's it, the music of the words kind of tells you what it's doing without even the, right. the definition of them. Yeah, that right? is fascinating. Right. English does that ubiquitously, right? Right. In fact, you can ask a question without the intonation and everybody knows you're being sarcastic. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, interesting stuff. So I, I uh, when I read Latin now, I want to do it kind of consistently with kind of like a valley girl up talk. Right? <laughs> uh, and so, you know, and then I went from here to there. That is the worst. It's the worst. I can't stand it. Right? <laughs> so these lines you just you just read, um, we have, um, this is Latinus addressing the Trojans. So, and this is Lombardo, right? This is Lombardo, right? So... We learn that the news of these strangers have reached Latinus, and he invites them in. Um, and so we, we I, this also, uh, in terms of like Odyssean, uh, Odyssean parallels, uh, maybe he, Latinus as um, Alcinous from the Phaeacians. Yes. Right? So, um, and so, yeah, we're still in kind of an Odyssean honeymoon there, and the, the, the hammer of the Iliad hasn't fallen yet. And Latinus says, sons of Dardanus, for we do know your race and your city and have heard of your sea voyage. Tell us why you have come. So the story, like, just like in, in Carthage, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. They already know all about this stuff. What purpose or need has borne you over so many dark blue seas to the shores of Asonia? Whether you lost your bearings or storm winds blew you off course, as often happens to those who sail the high seas and so entered our river, do not refuse our hospitality. Know that the Latins are Saturn's race, a people just not by laws or constraints, but of their own free will, keeping the ways of their ancient god. And I seem to recall, though time has dimmed the old Aruncan tale, how Dardanus was born in this land and went from, the, from from here to Phrygian Ida and to Samothrace. It was from here he came, from the Tyrrhenian town of Corythus. Uh, and now he sits in the golden palace of the starry sky, while here on earth there is one more altar to the gods above. Mm. So we have this link. It's, it's, it's not just uh, the Trojans coming from Troy all the way to Italy. It's coming full circle. Coming back home. Like their original ancestor was Italian. They're autochthonous. Yes. Yeah, Exactly. So that, again, that also it it underscores the destiny. It it um, it says, um, you know, um, 
Aeneas and his and his people belong here, right? Because it was originally um, belonged to their ancestors. Well, you know that old legend about uh, the Etruscans uh, coming from somewhere in what was Asia Minor, mm-hmm. recorded by Herodotus. Yeah, and yeah. There has been a lot of effort to establish via DNA and evidence and linguistic evidence to establish the historical validity of that link. Oh, really? And I don't know exactly what the status is. I think it's generally believed to have some basis in truth. Yeah. But I don't think it's been concluded. Really? So even DNA? Some kind of evidence. Ancestry.com. Yep. Trying to establish. That's that's fascinating. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. So... Um, coming full circle. Coming full circle. Right. Right. And so um, Latinus already seems to kind of know all about the Trojans. Right. And the Trojans seem to, in many ways, also seem to kind of know a lot about uh, Latinus. Mm-hmm. In a way that kind of, I made a note here. It's like, you know, how do they know so much about each other? I mean, I, I mean, the story of, of the Trojan War has preceded them. But on the flip side, um, it also seems the, uh, that the Trojans already know a lot about Latinus. I think it's TikTok, honestly. Is that what it is? I think there was someone on one of... Um, Aeneas's ships who was, you know, posting videos the whole time. Yeah. Right? Here we are pulling out of the, you know, harbor of Carthage. What's that fire up on the hill? Let me let me catch that. Right, catch that. You kind of frame yourself right. in, in the, the Instagram, selfie. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> Aeneas, quick selfie, you, me, Dido, right? Oh, man. And that's how it was spreading, like wildfire. Like wildfire, mm-hmm. right. Well, absent TikTok, right. um, I thought maybe what Virgil was going for is that this immediate camaraderie, this immediate kind of knowledge of the other is is also kind of, it's, it's saying, look, this is... This is meant to be correct, right? They, they're they're already speaking like like family. Correct. Yeah, it's close, right? And that great source of augury, right? Twitter. Twitter. Yes, exactly. Where do you get your news? Where do you find out what's going on from the birds? Yeah, there you Twitter. go. Yeah, perfect. So Latinus, again, he's keeping this this oracle that he just got in mind. He welcomes the Trojans, promises them land and sanctuary, and he's immediately convinced that this um, this kid Aeneas is going to be his uh, his son in law. Right. Um, but the problem but, is he didn't tell his wife. Right. And his wife is going to be very upset about this. So not just his wife, but Juno. He's planning to go to the game. He's purchased tickets. He's lined up his buddies. He's catered the food. Yep. Right, leaving at 6 a.m. in the morning or he's going on a fishing trip or something like that. But then there's just that one little detail. Yeah. He didn't tell his wife. He didn't tell his wife. And you're just asking for right. it. Right. Honey, do you think it would be okay if... Those words never left his mouth. Right. So we're having a little fun about the you know the battle between the sexes, but Virgil likes that too. He right? does. As does Homer. Right? Yep. It's a comic trope going all the way back to the Iliad. Yes. So now the honeymoon is over. It is. Right? The, the lull in the story, right? The calm, peaceful, tranquil part, it's done. Yeah. So this is, this is we're getting to line 286 where um, I, our Ope quarter... Uh, Reckford. Yes, that's correct. Um, this is where he says that. Um, yeah, now now it, now it's go time. That's correct. So Juno um, comes back, and it, she again, very much like uh, in the Odyssey, um, Poseidon returning from Ethiopia. And he says, "What's been happening?" He was down there being feted, right? He was by the locals, enjoying a feast and a sacrifice. Yeah. He comes back, and there's trouble. There's big trouble. All this stuff has been happening in his absence. And so Juno has been off in Argos over in Greece, and she comes back, and she is not happy. And um, here's some Lombardo here. So at home on the land, their ship's empty. She stopped in midair, pierced with grief and shaking her head, poured forth these words. This is Juno. Do you have a Juno voice? I don't have a good Juno voice. Be someone like, uh, who's that actress when when we were very young who was known? Kathleen Turner. Oh, yeah. Known for her deep voice. Exactly. Ah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of a little bit of that, too. Is that how she talks? Well, uh, uh, oh, you're talking. I was thinking of Katherine Hepburn. Sorry. You're thinking <laughs> Kathleen Turner. <laughs> you know, Katherine Hepburn had the, the, the No, I voice. was thinking of Katherine, Kath- Kathleen, Kathleen Turner, Turner, like Romancing the Stone. Correct. Yeah, exactly. Another Indiana Jones. If I had thing. a good Kathleen Turner voice, I'd use it. That's yeah. the kind of person of Juno, yeah. right? An authoritative female voice with an... I don't know, an edge to it, right? Yes. A hint of anger. Oh my gosh, Kathleen Turner would be the perfect Juno. You think so? I love that. Okay. I love that. But I'm not going to attempt to do her voice. Janice Joplin. Uh, yes. Get, get, get throaty, scratchy, but powerful. Mm-hmm. She says, Ah, hated race, Phrygian fates at odds with mine. Couldn't they have died in the Sigean plain? Defeated? Couldn't they have endured defeat? Didn't burning Troy cremate these men? No, they found a way through fire and foe. My divinity must be wearing thin. Or I've grown content, my wrath appeased, not exactly. When they were thrown out of their country, I persecuted the outcasts all over the deep blue sea. All the powers of sea and sky have been used against them. So 
she's going to throw it down. But again, Juno, she knows the the rule of oracles. She knows the destiny has to come true, but she knows the wiggle room within the oracles. I can make it. I can make it hell on earth for these people between points A and point B. Correct. Yep. Jeff, one of the things that really strikes me about this speech is how similar it is to the angry speech she gives in book one. Right. When they are the, you know, she's about to unleash the storm at sea, right? Why can't these people know when they're beaten? Yes. Right, is the idea. Yeah. And of course, this brings out the incredible parallelism that's sown all through the epic. Book one corresponds to book seven, book two, to book eight, three, and so on and so forth. Right. And we can talk about that next time, perhaps a little bit um, at greater length. Yeah. Uh, But the speech here, it's so much like what she says in book one. Yeah. Why didn't you just die? Right. And it it, it deliberately wants the audience to kind of, to to think of that. That's correct. To connect them. And that... um, I think that's again. That's what uh, Mr. Reckford is, is. He's looking for that kind of stuff, right? Right. You know why? You know how does the second half make sense against the first half? Yep. Precisely. But hey, we are up against it. We got to get out of here. And so, um, but before we go, uh, Dave, can you tell us a bit about the Moss Method? I can, and I want to make the big announcement of the Black Friday Monsai. Oh, I love the Black Friday Monsai. Yes, the Black Friday Monday Cyber. Yes. So this is our annual sale uh, on the Moss Method. It's going to begin on Thursday, which is American Thanksgiving. Thursday, what is it? Uh, November, let's see, 24. That's what it is this year? Yeah, okay. The 24th. It's going to begin on Thursday, November 24th, Thanksgiving Day, and it's going to continue through Monday, that is Cyber Monday, which is November 29. Okay. During this special time, you can get 10% off the Moss Method, but you might be saying, what is the Moss Method? Yeah. Jeff, tell them about the Moss Method. I, I'm going to leave that to you because you are the, the... But you've heard it times times now, like well, 60 or 70. The Moss Method. just a few items. Sure. It, it is... Um, it is a method of learning Greek uh, designed by uh, you over there on the other side of the table. And it is a way for anybody to learn Greek and that can take you from neophyte to erudite in a fairly short time. You offer all kinds of stuff online, lots of videos, very per, uh, personalized instruction. That's right. Um, lots of free videos to check it out before it kind of make, if you want to check things out before you make that leap. Right. Um, you, well said. You, you meet with the students uh, with, uh, in Moffis hours. That's correct. Every Friday we meet for Moffis hours. We read Greek. We answer questions. We have a good time. Right. And there's no, there's no uh, kind of offloading this stuff on flunkies who don't no, know what they're doing. It's, no, it's it, direct. It's direct, and and um, yeah, and you're the man. Oh, thank you. Yeah, boy, you did that well. I should hire you, yeah. man. Oh my goodness, I could. I'll be your flunky. What a promo. There we go. And we have the Latin program too, which is going to have a Black Friday Monsai. The, the same deal for that one too. I haven't decided on the terms. Okay. You'll have to just go there and find out. Okay. But it's latinperdm.com/slash llpsi. And I'd like to say now that the course is completely finished, and it has uh, more than twenty-five hours of uh, video instruction plus tons of other stuff. I'm going to raise the price. So it's $199 right now. This is going to be your last chance to get it at this bargain price before I have to raise it. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yes. Uh, listen, take advantage. It's, it's great stuff. Yeah. I don't know if I, I haven't decided, am I going to raise it to $3,000 oh, or $4,000? Well, I mean, there's inflation out I there. I got mouths to feed, yeah, man. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So jump on it. Yes. Uh, Whom do we need to thank? Oh, uh, as always, uh, big thanks goes out to Mishka, our intrepid audio engineer, puts the whole thing together um, and makes the sound way better than we actually are. That's right. Are. She's our rapid response team. We record one of these and then we say, Mishka, we need this. Come in, on, turn it around. 90 minutes. That's right. right? And, and she can do it. Just like that. And who are these great musicians that the audience hears? Yeah, so the screaming guitar at the beginning, I like to consider him a combination of Stevie Ray Vaughan and Eddie Van Halen, yeah. is the great Scott Van Zen. Fantastic. And uh, he's doing those arpeggios and all that bluesy stuff. And then uh, Ken Tamplin is one of the composers for that. And he also gives us the bumper music for the ads. Yes, big thanks to those guys. Hey, if you want a shout out, if you want uh, a question answers, if you if you have an idea for an episode, anything you'd like to hear or... Or if you have a, a corrigendum. Yeah, right? you want to complain. Yes, right. Tell us where we messed up. Yeah, sometimes I'd like to send us an angry message, frankly. <laughs> I get plenty of those from you. Yeah, that's true. Right. <laughs> so if you if you want a shout out, if you, if you anything on your mind, you can write to Dave at Dave at adnauseum.com. Don't forget the V. Or, or Jeff at adnauseum.com. Do not forget the V in adnavseum. No, otherwise it will not reach us. Won't reach us. And Jeff, yeah? I believe that you have the gustatory parting shot. I do. This comes from a mutual favorite of ours, the, the, the uh, incomparable Groucho Marx. There's nobody like that. The right. guy invented comedic banter. He did. Yes, yes brilliant. Unbelievable. Right, and here's a bit of it. He says, uh, two women at a resort discuss dinner. 
The food here is lousy, the first noted. The second added, you're right, it's such small portions. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening. Thanks. Thanks.